Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Ken Hirsch, I'm the global co-chair of TMT Banking at Goldman Sachs, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Scott Cooper, who is the managing partner of the storied venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, also known as A16Z. So you'll hear us interchange those terms today. It's the same firm. And he's also the author of Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. So you're the first employee to join Mark and Ben when they found yep. uh, A16Z. Um, and for everybody's benefit, that's Andreessen Horowitz, just A and Z, exactly. the 16 letters <laughs> in between um, for efficiency. Yes. Um, but um, what were Mark and Ben setting out to do at the time? Yep. What were the three of you setting out to do? And what, what really made A16Z so distinct and different from traditional venture capital firms. Yeah, so you you gotta remember the time period, which is we started kind of really formulating the firm in kind of mid-08, right? And uh, of course, none of us knew what was about to happen in September of 08, but at least, you know, kind of we thought we were in in a good spot. The basic idea was this, was we had all been customers of venture capital firms. So, you know, we had all been in the entrepreneurial community. Obviously, Mark, you know, going way back to the days of Netscape had been, you know, again, a recipient of venture capital. And the whole theory behind the firm was, we thought there was a bunch of stuff changing in the industry that was going to upset the competitive dynamic. So, you know, kind of in very simple terms, at least the way I think about the business is for most of the first kind of 40 to 50 years of the business, kind of early 1970s to 2000s, the business was characterized by capital was scarce, the VCs had it, and therefore if you look at the general balance of power between VCs and entrepreneurs, the VCs were up here and the entrepreneurs were down here. Now that's you know, that's probably an unfair way to summarize 45 years of history, but that's kind of a quick way to think about it. And what we started to see was we started to feel like that balance was tipping. And it was somewhat a function of kind of seed capital being more available. It was somewhat a function of, quite frankly, things like Y Combinator and other stuff that was just educating entrepreneurs. And so uh, they had been doing angel investing on their own, you know, kind of through 07 and 08. And what we decided was, look, if we if we had a differentiated value proposition, there was now kind of an opportunity for a new firm to kind of break into the market in a way that just hadn't been possible before. And so the whole idea was, we said, gee, what do we really like? We like entrepreneurs who are kind of product visionaries who also want to be CEOs for the company. We like kind of the melding of those two jobs, basically. Mm -hmm. And we think, you know, when that works out well, you know, you get a Jeff Bezos at an Amazon or you get the original Bill Gates at Microsoft or others, right? You get this kind of founder CEO archetype that can create great companies. So we said, look, what if we could design a firm to hopefully attract those types of individuals and then be able to maximize the chances that that person could grow into the long-term role of being CEO? That was really the foundational underpinnings for the business. And um, two other things that I think about when I think about distinctiveness of what Andreessen Horowitz uh, provides entrepreneurs, post-investment services and capabilities and just a set of resources that really are quite unique. Will you comment on that? Absolutely, yeah. So if you go back again to the kind of primary idea was, which was, okay, how can we start with a founder CEO who hopefully wants to be a long-term CEO? And we said, okay, 
that individual probably is going to be missing a lot of skill sets in order to grow into that role. And you know, quite frankly, in some cases, some, some of these people have never managed people before. In some cases, they've never had jobs before, right? Because right. they're literally coming out of school. Um, so we said, OK, what does that individual need? Well, one piece, as you mentioned, was if we could put a board member on their board who had been either a founder or CEO before, or at least involved in the startup ecosystem, hopefully that board member acts as a good consigliere and coach and mentor and partner to them. The second piece, as you described, is could we surround them with resources that would kind of round out their skill set in other ways? So a simple example, and you know, you know this because we've worked with Goldman on this, is could we use our brand and our reach to build relationships with the CIO and the CTO at Goldman Sachs, for example, and kind of be effectively a partner to Goldman Sachs by giving them a window into early stage technology and then benefit our portfolio companies by also giving them access to very senior decision makers at places like Goldman who are sophisticated technology buyers with the goal that over time, look, if we do that right, you know, kind of we create potential sales and business development opportunities that could accrue to the benefit of our companies. So we have basically, to your point, we have 100 people of our 180 people, so almost two-thirds of our headcount focused on post-investment. Mm -hmm. One area is this kind of sales and business development. Uh, we help them in two talent areas. So one is kind of, you know, how do we help them identify executives that, you know, could come into the businesses? How do we help them identify engineers? So we go onto college campuses and kind of help, you know, connect 25 different computer science departments into kind of our... Uh, you know, kind of portfolio companies. We help them on PR and marketing. And so that's the whole theory is, look, if you take this whole network, can we use our brand and our reach to build a network of people and companies that are interested in accessing early stage technology? And if that network accrues to the benefit of our portfolio companies, you know, it's a win-win for everybody, right? So hopefully Goldman Sachs is happy because they see early stage stuff. Hopefully our portfolio companies are happy because it's a customer opportunity. And then hopefully we and our LPs are happy because this increases the opportunity for the company to grow. And then hopefully also for that CEO to really kind of grow into that long-term role. Yeah, no, no question. And we think of ourselves as valuing our convening power. Right. In a lot of ways, you're doing the same thing yeah. in bringing together the most exciting, innovative, next-generation companies with um, existing companies participating across yeah. the economy. And, yeah, I think um, that's right. The way, yeah, the way to think about it is kind of we're we're trying to effectively, you know, to your point, we're trying to build and create a network effect, right? Is the way to right. think about it, right? So if you think about, you've got big companies and you've got executives and you've got engineers and the press, anybody who wants to access early stage technology on one end of the network. And then hopefully we have you know, a really interesting ensemble of great entrepreneurs who are right. approaching these problems. And look, if we can add value to both sides, you know, again, not dissimilar to your business, there are plenty of ways ultimately you monetize the, you know, the value of those relationships. And that's really how we're trying to build the firm. Okay, a decade later, you, you, the firm yeah. gets founded in 2009. Here we are in 2019. Um, what are you most proud of in terms of what A16Z has accomplished and what's changed the most in the industry over yeah. that time? Yeah, uh, let me take the first one first. Um, so uh, look, I think what we're most proud of is historically, as I mentioned, is it's been very hard for new venture capital firms to break into this business, right? right. Uh, and a lot, there's a lot of reasons for that. And if you look even at the academic literature, what you see is that there's this idea of persistence, which is kind of good venture capital firms tend to persist in the next fund and next funds. And so it's been historically very hard from a standing start for new firms to come in. Uh, and so I'd say, look, if we're proud of, you know, kind of one thing, it's that we were able to kind of create a value proposition that actually resonates with entrepreneurs in a way that we think actually accrues value to entrepreneurs and therefore makes us competitive in the market. And, you know, I think if you were sitting here 10 years ago, uh, that was kind of the big question on the minds of limited partners and other people who were, who were ultimately partnering with us, which is, okay, great. 
there's no question that Mark and Ben are brilliant strategists and technologists. The question is, okay, can you figure out a way to make yourself attractive to entrepreneurs who have choices and are going to pick you against many of the other storied venture capital firms who have, you know, 40, 50 years of track record ahead of us. And so I feel like hopefully through a combination of our, you know, value proposition and respect for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial process that that's been great. Um, what's changed over the years? Um, there's been a lot that's changed. Look, I think the most foundational things that have happened in our business that have huge ramifications for all of us, and, you know, you see this in your business too, is... Uh, two things have happened. Number one is, look, it's cheaper than ever to start a company today. And, you know, that's, you know, anybody who studies technology knows that that's obvious today. That wasn't obvious 10 or 15 years ago. But, you know, kind of with the advent of not just kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, things like Amazon Web Services, but just fundamental cost decreases in all the inputs for companies, right? Up and so, down the stack. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you were there at the very beginning. When we started LoudCloud, we raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists, and I like to joke, and, and this is not, you know, there's hopefully there's, this is not actually true, but, you know, that we were kind of, a, we basically laundered money from the venture capitalists to large cap tech, right? And so what I mean by that was we raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists, and then we paid Sun to buy servers, we paid Oracle to buy database licenses, we paid BEA to buy web server licenses, we paid EMC to buy storage. You effectively, we were this conduit from the venture capitalist money to the big cap tech money. Um, and that was because everything was expensive and everything was also capital expenditures versus operating expenditures. T to me, the most foundational financing piece that's changed in our business is not only have the unit costs of all those things come down, but now you have operating expenses instead of capital expenditures, right? You know, you, you know obviously Amazon Web right. Services being the most canonical example of that. So you need a lot less capital. You need a lot less capital to start. Uh, and that's why you see, for example, in the, in the venture industry has basically mirrored that, which is all the growth in the venture business over the last 10 years has come in terms of new fund formation has come in the seed stage. So there's something like 800 new firms in the U.S. that have been formed over the last 10 years that are, are all kind of sub-$100 million AUM businesses that focus on seed, right? And so, and that just has huge ramifications for the competitive dynamics of this business. The, the other massive change, again, which I know you, know you see as well, is on the complete other end of the spectrum, you have this massive elongation of companies staying private, right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll come back to that. We're going to come too. back to that. So those are, I think, the two foundational things that I think have for, I believe, are big structural changes that are not going away in the industry. And, you know, they change the competitive dynamics, they change the nature of entrepreneurship, they change the ability of companies to get started with capital. Right. You know, the seed stuff to me is a beautiful thing because it allows for experimentation uh, in a way that you just didn't have before. Um, mm -hmm. And you just, you see it in the numbers, right? So today, just to give you a sense, uh, in 2018, we did about 8x as an industry the number of seed deals that we did 10 years prior. Uh, and it even actually was higher. 2015, it was actually 12x, so we're even on a slight dec decrease wow. from kind of our peak. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, all those companies can, of course, go on to be big companies, but it means for relatively small amounts of capital, you can get great experimentation out there, which, which I think is just a, is a huge boon for the entrepreneurial community. My guess is everybody in this room reads the paper or reads headlines every day sure. um, uh, in whatever form they're consuming it. Uh, and they're aware of many, many of A16Z's incredible investments. What they're probably not as articulate on or, or clear on is the role, the, the disproportionate role that venture capital plays in being the engine room effectively of the global economy, job creation and, and investment and, and re, where, where real dollars are going into R&D. Right. Um, can you just put that into perspective for this group because you do such a good job of it in, in the book? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. So there's a so if you think about the numbers at the outset, look, venture capital, as much as you know, I love to talk about it. Look, it's a tiny, tiny number, right? We're talking about you know. So last year was was a all time high for the business. Uh, depending on which numbers you believe, because some people put Juul or not in the numbers, somewhere between 100 and 130 billion dollars was invested in venture capital funded companies. That's a U.S. number, by the way. Last year, the U.S. is about half of the business right now, so double that number to say roughly that's kind of global. If you think about that in the context of any other asset class, it's tiny, right? Think about that in terms of hedge funds or private equity. You know, you're talking about fractions of a percent of GDP, basically, is kind of you know how much money is actually invested. What you're referencing is there's a wonderful study by a couple of professors at Stanford Business School, uh, Ilya Strubilov, I think, is, is uh, the main author of it, to kind of try and quantify, notwithstanding how small the dollars are, what's the ultimate impact of venture-funded companies on economic growth? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, as we know today, look, you know, it may be no longer the top five, but at least the top six, for sure, because I think Berkshire Hathaway, depending upon the day, is in there. You know, the top six, you know, publicly listed companies, five of them are, you know, all venture-backed companies. Uh, and if you think about that in terms of job creation, Something like, you know, kind of 40% of all jobs, you know, kind of, you know, are account for, accounted for in, you know, publicly listed companies. Uh, the R&D numbers, as you mentioned, are crazy. It's, it's like 80% of kind of annual R&D expenditure comes from venture-backed companies. Right. And so, you know, part of the message, at least, that, you know, part of why I love being in this business, and, you know, as you, you know, I spent some time in D.C. trying to talk to policymakers, right. is we've done a wonderful job as a country of creating kind of a regulatory and economic framework that allows entrepreneurship to kind of, quite frankly, punch well above its weight in terms of kind of what the dollars are that goes into the industry. And so we've all been huge beneficiaries of that, particularly, obviously, look, if you're in a place like New York or Boston or San Francisco, you've been disproportionately, you know, impacted by that. Uh, but, you know, venture as a, again, the, the impact of venture-funded companies, I think, can't be understated. And, uh, you know, again, uh, it's something that obviously, you know, we're, we're incredibly proud to be part of and, and just be associated with the wonderful things that entrepreneurs do. Right. We came into 2019 with <clears throat> something north of a trillion dollars of private company market cap. Right. It's clear that companies are staying private longer and that that's somewhat intentional. Um, will you talk a little bit about what set us on that path? Yeah. Um, and is it, is it all good in terms of A16's investments for entrepreneurs, for employees? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I think, um, I actually think we've been on this path for almost a 15, 20 year period. I yeah. think it was kind of a little bit just, it was under the radar and people didn't see it. So if you look at the data though, you can start to see kind of IPO numbers start to trail off, really kind of starting, you know, you, the bubble's a weird era, right? So you have to kind of a little bit, you know, put brackets right. around 99, 2000. But if you really look at things from kind of 1995, 97 on, you kind of really see this long-term trend of, you know, kind of in the US, not just technology, of having had, you know, 300, 400 IPOs consistently a year for kind of, you know, most of the 70s and 80s and, and early parts of the 90s to today where, you know, kind of we've been trailing, you know, we've been, depending on the numbers, somewhere between 100 to 200 IPOs pretty consistently. And the nature of those IPOs has changed, right? So again, it used to be that the vast majority of IPOs were, you know, what you would now call even micro cap companies, right? You'd call them yeah. sub $500 million market cap companies right. to today, obviously, you know, effectively 80, 90% of the companies are multi-billion dollar market cap. So, I think we've been on this long-term trend. My personal view is there's a number of factors that got us here. Uh, I think a big one was structural changes that kind of uh, the SEC started to make to the capital markets, really starting with things like Reg NMS that go back obviously to the late 90s. And I think those were, those were well-intentioned regulatory changes that were intended to increase the efficiency of the markets. And they did a wonderful job, right? right. There's no question from a consumer perspective, right? Like the markets are incredibly efficient. The challenge though, I think what we didn't anticipate was in doing so, we created a highly efficient market 
that accrues and works in a market where you have very highly liquid, very well-traded stocks, right? So, you know, it's great that Apple and Facebook and others kind of trade at, you know, kind of, you know, you know, very small spreads, Most spreads. right? Uh, because look, there's plenty of volume there. And so the bigger infrastructure of research and sales and, you know, marketing mm -hmm. and all that other stuff, you can support that on high volume, even with relatively low, low, uh, low spreads. The challenge is, at least my view, and you know, again, Ken, you, you, you work this business every day, but to be a small cap company today, and I would almost say small caps probably sub a couple billion dollars, you know, just to be fair, it's a really lonely place to be. So we did good things like the Jobs Act, which make it easier to get public. But then the question is, what does the market look like once you're public? Like, do you have great banks like Goldman providing research coverage? Do you have sales and trading desks talking to right. the buy side? And, and look, I get it. This is not an indictment of the banking industry. It's just not economically efficient for, you know, particularly for large banks to do that, right? There's not enough trading volume. And so as a result, you kind of have these smaller companies that can get orphaned as public companies. And so I think against that backdrop, basically, you have people like us who've kind of said to our portfolio companies, look, you really don't want to be in that situation because there's nothing great about being public if you don't have employee liquidity, if you don't have the ability to raise additional capital in the follow-on markets. And so I think what has happened actually is as a result, therefore, public money now has come into the private markets to accommodate that. And uh, you know, look again. You see this every day in your business. But whether it's Fidelity or T Rowe or BlackRock, or it's the you know hedge funds like Co2 and others, uh, or now we see you know obviously clearly guys like SoftBank and Sovereign Wealth Funds and others. Right. My, my personal view is uh, I think the media has the ordering wrong, which is I think the public money followed the private markets as a result of this change in companies staying private longer. I actually don't think the public money caused this change. Um, I think it's really a natural reflection of, of what's happened. You, you asked kind of the other question, which is, is it good or not? I think, um, you know, it's good in the sense that if you believe that, look, it's, if you believe it's easier to grow a bigger company out of the kind of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, stresses that are in the public market, then yes, I mean, you know, all things be equal, you would think, okay, if a, stump, if a company stays private longer and has access to capital, that's probably better for long-term company creation. Uh, so on the one end, I think it's good. I think on the other end, it's got a lot of externalities that are bad. One is, look, and, and I've, I've testified about this publicly in, in Congress, we essentially have a massive wealth transfer happening from, from, you know, kind of public investors to private investors. And, you know, selfishly for people like us, look, we're a beneficiary of that wealth transfer, right, as an investor in venture capital, or if, you know, I don't know if, you know, the Goldman Sachs, you know, how much private equity matters for your business, but look, selfishly, that's good for people who are in the business, right, which is, look, more and more of the profits are accruing to private investors. Uh, I think that's a bad thing long-term for society and for our markets. Um, you know, most, invest most Americans invest in the public markets and depend upon the public markets for appreciation. You know, the, the, the data point I like to always give, which is admittedly a bit of a, a, a you know, an overstated case, but uh, I don't know if Goldman was involved in the, in the uh, IPO of um, Microsoft. Um, we were. You were. Okay, so 1986, probably, you know, before your time. But 1986, Microsoft goes public at a $350 million market cap, right? Today, Microsoft's a trillion-dollar-ish market right. cap or something like and, that. So. And Cisco and Oracle Cisco, and Oracle, Apple, Amazon, they all would have right? been all these guys, sub right? $600 million. Exactly. So call it roughly, like rough math, like 350 to a trillion, that's what, like 3,000x approximately. Admittedly, over a 35-year period, but like, right. that's a great IRR no matter what, right? If you were a public market investor, you had access to that appreciation for the last... 33 years, actually, whatever we're talking about. You know, Facebook goes public, uh, you know, at $100 billion. If you just did the math just for fun and said, okay, could Facebook grow over the next 33 years at the same rate that Microsoft yeah, has grown? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you would quickly find, look, it, it just mathematically doesn't work, right? I mean, you know, you would be, it'd be worth, you know, $200 trillion. Yeah, it's like more than the entire global GDP, right? Or something yeah. like that. Um, 
And, and it's admittedly, on one hand, it's a crazy analogy. On the other hand, though, it's, it's actually indicative of what is happening, which is um, more and more of the wealth creation will accrue to private market investors. And, uh, and, and look, as I said, you know, I'm talking against my own book here. You know, that's selfishly good for people like us who get access to that, but I don't think that's good for the country. Okay, one other area in the, from a market development perspective yeah. um, <clears throat> is really around innovation yeah. in the capital markets. Um, and lately, that, that discussion, that narrative has revolved around the IPO, right. the direct listing. Yeah. Um, what's your take on this uh, topic, and what should we expect from yeah. A16Z and its portfolio companies? I, I, think, I think people are, I think, I'm glad at least we're having this conversation, to be completely honest, which is, look, there's a, I think there's a real question, which is, um, you know, okay, like, how, what is the art of pricing an IPO? And look, you know, kind of what is the measure of success, right? Is the measure of success how much it trades up on the first day is a measure of success, kind of what band it trades into. I don't, I don't, I don't think we know, and we've never actually had the discussion. I mentioned it in the book, um, uh, which I, just to show you how much times have changed, when I was at Credit Suisse, we took a company, VA Linux Public, which you'll probably remember, and uh, the stock priced it, it priced at 30, first trade was at 300, it closed at like 234 on the first day. And I'll never forget this, in our pitch books after that, we marketed that. We said, hey, we have the highest first day pop ever of any technology company. We literally went from $30 to $300. Now, obviously, today, we'd be laughed out of the room, uh, you know, kind of if you talked about that, and, and maybe that's a good sign of, of things changing. Right. You know, so, one, one thing I'd say, just as you go down yeah. this path, is um, the, the IPO has been a sort of a topic. Uh, there's been a discussion around innovation in the IPO for right. as long as I've been doing this, which is 28 years, and probably was going on for the... 28 years before that. Um, and uh, innovation in all of the markets that you invest in is good. You disrupt yep. markets that haven't changed in a long time. So our take on this is just, just to maybe ease the <laughs> sense of, of the room for you. Uh, innovation's good. Yeah. Um, we served, as you know, um, as the lead advisor on the only two yep. direct listings that have yep. occurred, including Slack. Uh, thank yep. you. In our portfolio, thank you. Um, uh, and you know our sense is that there's still a lot of work to do yeah. on both fronts. You know, I, evolving I the IPO. Evolving I think that's right. Listing. I think that's right. Look, I'm not. I'm not sure if like the direct listing as it currently exists is the panacea for all these issues, right? Uh, but I agree with you. Look, I think it's good that we're having this conversation, which is okay. Look, what are we trying to optimize for, right? Are we trying to right. optimize for cap, cash proceeds into the coffers of the company? Right. Are we trying to optimize for like you know kind of some tighter trading range. So I think it's a fair question. Um, you know. I think long term, it'll be interesting, you know, there, there was this meme for a while, which I'm sure you, you all heard that, look, this was a cost play on behalf of, look, if we could save money, uh, you know, kind of in fees. My personal view is it's not that it's not that relevant. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, kind of the companies we're talking about at the scale they're talking about, you know, kind of they're not play, paying the rack rate probably for these for traditional IPOs anyway. So mm. I'm not convinced that the difference is that material at the end of the day in terms of kind of, you know, what the fee settings are. But I think there is this broader question, which is, okay, assume today at least you don't need capital. You know, are you better off as a shareholder with, you know, not having the dilution of capital and of kind of getting something out in the market that trades in a tighter range? Look, I think we don't know the answer yet, right? So the only two data points yeah. we have so far are, are, you're right, are Spotify and Slack, um, you know, both of which were very well done, but it's hard to know how you measure success. So bo in both cases, I think, if I'm correct, the stocks currently trade at prices below uh, where, certainly where the initial trades were. I can't, I'm not sure relative to the reference prices. 
Correct. Slack is probably still above its reference price, but um, it's. I think it's right in. It's right. Yeah, right around there. And so, look, I don't know. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's success or not. Right. On one hand, you could argue, look, like optically, you don't like the way that looks. On the other hand, you might argue, look, like maybe, maybe, maybe it worked, which is you got better yeah. price discovery. So, look, I think this is a conversation that's not going to go away, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, we can talk about it next year when you come back. Exactly. Right. Yes. Uh, if 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 you'll come back. Absolutely. Um, what are the fundamental questions? What are the fundamental things you're looking at as you're evaluating? you and your investing partners are evaluating uh, a company. Yeah, so let's let's focus on early stage because obviously later stage there's other things to do. But look, at the end of the day, you know, it, you know, and I try to lay this out in the book, you got to think about our incentive structure, right? Which right. is look, every incentive that we have as venture capitalists is to, you know, to forgive the baseball metaphor, but is to swing for the fences, right? Right. And like that's what LPs are looking for. They're looking for very high cash on cash returns. They're looking for very high, you know, IRRs over periods of time and the, you know, for better or worse, we are wrong more often than we're right in this business. And so the only way the math of this business works is you have to have 10 to 20% of your investments that return, quite frankly, 80 to 90% of the returns in your business. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, if you don't have, you know, a Facebook or a, you know, Airbnb or something like that, you can't kind of risk averse your way to the kinds of returns you have to be successful. Right. So if you start from that premise, basically what that means is, number one is we have to invest in things that if they're successful, can become long-term, standalone, profitable, important businesses, right? right? And you know, you would know this better than I, but look, I think to me that means, okay, can they be a public company at some point in time, which means in today's day and age, can you support a multi-billion dollar market cap, which probably means, okay, can you get to 300 to 500 million dollars of revenue and still have prospects to grow 35 to 50% compounding over a reasonable period of time, right? I mean, you know, and obviously yeah. we can talk about profit characteristics <clears throat> too, but at the end of the day, like at least of scale, you got to be able to get to that scale. So that's kind of thing number one. And then the analysis, if you believe that, then is just okay. Why this team versus any other team, right? So, uh, and and that's not that's not you know uh, meant to kind of you know be mean. It's just meant to say, look, big markets will attract competition. And so you know the question is, okay, like what is it about this team that uniquely qualifies them to win this market? You know. What secrets do they know that no one else knows? How do they earn those secrets? Uh, you know, how do they deploy those secrets in, in terms of their product plans? Um, you know, we talk a lot in the book about you know storytelling, right? Which right. is okay. Like, how good are you able to articulate a vision that is, you know, admittedly a vision today? Right. Because you've got to go compete in Silicon Valley, particularly for like engineers, which is a hard thing to do. You've got to go compete for customers. You've got to go compete for all kinds of stuff. And so, right. so much of that. So you becomes, better be a good storyteller. Exactly right. So you know, I mean, the honest, the very honest answer in this business is like this is it's a highly qualitative kind of curation of people and ideas more so than it is certainly a spreadsheet exercise for sure. Right. Let's talk about diversity. Yeah, sure. Um, what's being done in the venture capital yep. industry to uh, diversify um, the investments you make? Yeah the boardrooms that, that govern those investments and, yep. and more. Yeah, so look, the numbers, I think, as you know, are, they're not good no matter how you slice them, right? So the, the Kauffman fellows put out a study the other day which kind of confirmed most of the numbers we know, which is something like 2% of funding goes to female-funded companies, 80% goes to male-funded-led uh, companies, and 18% goes to kind of hybrid, you know, male-female, you know, co-founded companies. So, and the numbers look for ethnic minorities, right. as we all know, are, are as bad, if not worse, than if what they worse. are for, for We know, see the gender. same thing through yeah. our um, launch at GS yeah. initiative. Yeah, so, so look, what can we do about it? The way we think about this is fundamentally a network connectivity problem, which is, for better or worse, and, and I'm not defending the industry here, so much of this business works around networks and relationships, and those networks and relationships, not surprisingly, are only as diverse as the people who are, you know, kind of in those networks. And so, look, I'm a 
lucky, I was lucky to have gone to Stanford and, and you know, been in this industry. And so look, my networks are highly informed by, by those groups and, and obviously they reflect the diversity they do, which is you know, better right. than probably it was 20 years ago, but not great. Um, so look, I think the obligation that we have in the industry and what we're trying to do as a firm is we have to do a better job of kind of connecting into networks that otherwise don't have access into us. So I'll give you one example we've done. We have this fund called the Cultural Leadership Fund which is the, the limited partners of that are African-American influencers, you know, uh, business people, sports people who want better connectivity into tech companies. Uh, and so part of what we've done with this fund, it's kind of a ride-along fund that invests in all of our deals, is to help kind of create business development and other opportunities for those influencers into our companies. Uh, we can use, you know, quite frankly, the, the, the marketing, you know, uh, bully puppet that we have to kind of, you know, say, hey, look, we are trying to, through this fund, we're gonna try to obviously improve connectivity to talent who wants to get into the industry, to uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs who want to get in the industry, and we're taking all the fees and, and hopefully the carry we generate from that and donating it to a series of nonprofits that those influencers have selected that will help improve hopefully kind of you know uh, STEM access for African Americans into technology. So Fantastic. it's not it's not a it's not a panacea. I don't want to kind of uh, you know suggest it is, but there's things like that where I think we are proactively trying to say, okay, look, we've got to do a better job of reaching out to networks that otherwise don't have access to us. And this is one way to do that. So we've got a couple other initiatives around board projects that we do. We've done a project uh, in connection with Stanford for a number of years. Uh, but I think that's, that's, I think, what's incumbent upon the industry is to try to do a better job there. Okay, I think with that, we're gonna wrap here. Um, please join me in thanking Scott Cooper from Thank Andreessen you. Horowitz. This podcast was recorded on October 8th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.